Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world, and welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. I've got to apologize for my voice. I've just got off an airplane from across the world, and uh, when I got off the plane, my voice was gone. So I apologize for that, but the show must go on, right? So we're going on. We're broadcasting today from Los Angeles, the third most important center in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, VCs, and incubators. Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv are number one and two. Los Angeles is number three. We're heard in over 60 countries around the world every week and are the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. Now, every uh, year, about 150,000 people from 150 countries attend the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And thousands of tech journalists and techies from across the world Watch intently to see what new products are going to catch our attention and change our world over the next few years. Now, a handful of the thousands of new technology products launched at this year's CES made a pretty powerful impression. And here are 10 products and categories that created the most buzz of the Las Vegas event that ended just a few days ago. Now, bearing in mind, there are a constant stream of products released and the overwhelming majority are destined to fade into obscurity even before the month of January is over. Now, smartwatches continue to be a hot theme heading into 2016 and China's highway has some of the most appealing the Watch Jewel and Watch Elegant, which had been released in 2016 for about 600 bucks US and 500 bucks US, both run on Android Wear software and are aimed at women. The Watch Jewel has 68 Swarovski zirconia crystals surrounding its circular face, and uh, the watch face is always on low power mode and lights up into full activity when tapped. Now, wearables also continue to be big with companies and entrepreneurs literally trying to cover every body part with connectivity and sensors. Montreal's Hexoskin announced a new smart shirt which measures its wearer's cardiac and breathing activity. That's what you need, a smart shirt. The shirt, as well as a tracking device that slips into it that you carry, sells for 450 bucks already in Canada. The shirts apparently works better than wrist-worn fitness trackers because it measures things that are hard to measure on the wrist. And in team sports, you simply cannot wear anything on your wrist. Now, toys are another item that's always a hit at CES even if they are educational, which is what Lego is aiming for with its new We Do 2.0 kit. The set, which is sold to schools, 
aims to introduce children in grades two to four to simple programming, a sort of slimmed-down version of Lego's full Mindstorms robotic toys. The base set, which lets kids create and program small Lego robots, starts at 169 bucks, with a separate curriculum package costing 2700 Remember Legos when they used to be simple? Now you, when you, you know, you're six years old, you build your own Lego robot and you program it yourself. <laughs> okay. A classroom of 30 students can be equipped for less than 2000 bucks, and it brings science to life in the classroom. Just, um, excuse me a second, we'll have another sip of honey and hot water because the only thing that keeps this throat going. Now, virtual reality was big news at this year's CES, with companies touting numerous headsets, controllers, and all sorts of applications. Taiwan's HTC is one of the companies leading the charge with its second-generation Vive Pre headset, which is much more compact and comfortable and features improved lenses as well as refined handheld controllers. The Vive Pre also has a front-facing camera for detecting its wearer's surroundings and preventing you from walking into things, which is always a pretty good idea. It really is a mind-blowing experience, but it still needs a high-powered computer to work. HTC will start taking pre-orders in February with an expected ship date in April, although HTC has not yet announced a price. A movement within um, virtual reality is still an issue that a number of startups are trying to solve. <coughs> Excuse me. France's 3D rudder has a round skateboard-like platform that lets the user move forward and backwards, side to side and up and down. And uh, you control movements with your feet while sitting, leaving your hands free to do other things or hold other controllers. So... You know, the device just helps keep your um, hands independent. And the 3D rudder will be available for pre-order in March for around 175 bucks. Drones were just simply everywhere at this year's CES, um, although fortunately they were relegated to cage silos in booths. But the options spanned the gamut from inexpensive toys from the likes of France's Parrot to the Inspire One from China's DJI. The Inspire One sells for 2600 US and is aimed at professional filmmakers. It's got a 4D, 4K camera and a video positioning system, so that's all very cool. Next generation cars. They're also really big at the moment. And uh, CES is quickly becoming the automaker's preferred venue for making product announcements. Among the standouts was California-based Faraday Future, which has now emerged from stealth mode. Backed by Jai Yuting, the founder of LETV, which is, as you know, China's version of Netflix. The company set to open a $1 billion production plant in Nevada. 
where it will work on connected self-driving electric vehicles. Now, the company's futuristic-looking concept car, the FF01, looks fantastic, I've got to say. Drew huge crowds in Vegas, and uh, the big questions are whether it's for real, but um, they had Las Vegas Mayor John Lee and Nevada Governor Brian Sandoval in attendance at the press conference. So I think we can probably assume that they're fair dinkum about it. Startups are also becoming a bigger part of CES every year. Eureka Park, which is an area that's been devoted to small businesses, it's grown every year since its inception four years ago. This year it hosted 500 exhibitors, up to just 375 last year, and the ideas spanned a wide range from retina reading luggage to coffee makers that can print photos into the foam on the top of the cup. Well, that's not new. That's been around in Japan for a long time, but it's still very cool. One unique idea is Dropler from California's Nascent Objects, which measures water consumption. The $100 US device syncs with an app where users can actually see how much water they're using. And uh, apparently... It's surprising how much people lower their consumption when using this gadget. So that could be a good thing that could pay for itself in no time. Ultra-high-definition 4K televisions, they're also picking up steam with all the major manufacturers now in full-blown push-made mode on the higher-resolution panels. One of the things that I loved was the roll-up screen. You just roll it up and tuck it under your arm like a, um, a yoga mat. I think that's very cool. But aside from backing more pixels onto screens, the TV makers, including Sony and Samsung and LG, they're also adding high dynamic range technology, which results in much better colour ranges and much whiter whites. Now, global sales of the high-end 4K televisions are expected to hit around 100 million by 2019, up from just 12 million two years ago. And, of course, to go with these 4K televisions, manufacturers will soon be releasing 4K, 4K Blu-ray players. Samsung and Philips were two of the major companies to announce devices at CES. Samsung's aiming for a March release but does not disclose the price, while the Philips player is expected to cost under 400 bucks, which is pretty good. Film studios also used CES to announce products, with Warner Brothers saying it will release 35 4K Blu-ray movies this year, including... Mad Max Fury Road, and the Lego movie. Again, I apologise for this voice. I've got to have another sip of hot water and lemon and honey. Sorry, sorry it sounds so scratchy. Now, CES in Las Vegas used to be all about TVs and gadgets and computers, but it's now pretty much turned into a car show as well. This year, of course, the biggest theme is driverless technology with every 
almost every car maker promising autonomous cars sometime in the very near future. Nissan's come out with one of the boldest statements, claiming it will launch more than 10 autonomous vehicles in the next four years. Vehicles with single-lane control, which drives the car autonomously on highways, including in stop-and-go traffic, are already here, of course, with Tesla's Model S and several other European cars leading the way. But this is the very first time that autonomous technologies trickle down to the affordable car market. By 2018, Nissan will introduce multiple lane control, which allows the car to work around road hazards and change lanes on freeways. And in 2020, Nissan will add intersection autonomy, allowing the car to navigate intersections and heavy traffic without the driver needing to do anything. Toyota's also committed $1 billion to developing the artificial intelligence behind driverless cars. Ford says its upcoming sensor for autonomous driving will be the most advanced in the world, allowing cars to create in real time a 3D map of the surroundings. Sounds pretty cool. And, of course, the big tech companies such as Google are also spending up big as they look to take on the driverless car market which is estimated to be worth as much as $87 billion worldwide by 2030. Of course, the biggest hurdle driverless technology faces is legislation, but companies such as Volvo say they're working hard to convince politicians that the technology is safe and will save lives and not endanger them. Of course, that won't happen until... The driverless cars can all talk to each other and talk to um, traffic lights and all the other controls. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, and that won't happen, I guess, in any great detail until <coughs> all, cars, all cars are autonomous. So anyway, we'll see. If you're not yet a member of the American Institute for Sales Marketing Management, which is the premier organization for business in the US and you are really serious about improving your skill level, your status and building that network of yours, you should join AISMM today. You know, you can put the initials AISMM after your name, which is terrific. It's been great for me. Um, you know, terrific plaque for your foyer or boardroom. There's stacks of the latest information, complete business audits, webinars, and advisory board like you've never seen anywhere else on the planet. So if you want to join the best organization in the country, go to AISMM.us and join now. My interview today is with Jeffrey Chernick. And Jeffrey's a great guy. He's the CEO and co-founder of Ride Amigos. He was before his time, but he's keeping up with it, and he's, they're doing phenomenally well. And they're a global leader in transportation demand management software. You know, they work with local governments and uh, major companies, mainly in North America, to eliminate traffic and increase and improve air quality. 
who's been featured on everything, you know, Fox, NBC, ABC, New York Post, Newsday, LA Times, you name it, Jeffrey's been on it. He's a director of Teen Foster Mentorship Program M4. He's a really cool rock and roll drummer with an electro band, Story of the Running Wolf, and he can be seen all over town playing at the end of the day after he solved the world's transport problems. He's a DJ and he's also a volunteer with NFTE, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Jeffrey's a great guy, very interesting discussion. So I'll interview him after this short break and you'll notice a big difference in the quality of the voice because I interviewed him on the phone the other day before I got this thing with my throat. Now, I'm Bob Pritchard. I'm on Voice America Business Channel, and I'll be back with Jeffrey and a proper voice after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're on Voice America Business. We come at you every Tuesday evening. And we're very proud to be the most listened to radio program in the world for entrepreneurs. We're heard in about 66 countries. And... uh, We've been going five years, we're in our fifth year, and uh, audiences have been growing steadily. We're well up over half a million people, and um, we're very proud of that. So this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people. You know, people that have enjoyed great success and are making a difference uh, in this very fast-moving technological world. There are some amazingly talented people. They're, it's extraordinary, and I belong to a group called Metal, as does today's guest, and uh, there's a couple of thousand of the most extraordinarily talented people who are all alpha leaders and go-getters and just pile on success after success, and there's so much that these people can teach us. So my aim in these interviews is to try and find out What are the characteristics of these people that make them successful and how can each of us learn from them? It doesn't matter what business you're in. It doesn't matter whether you're opening a dry cleaner or whether you 
uh, developing apps. We all face the same problems in that business process. So the more we can learn off others, the less mistakes theoretically we should make ourselves. Um, Jeffrey Chernick is the CEO and co-founder of Right Amigos. There's a lot more to him than that. Um, now, Right Amigos is a global leader in transportation demand management software, and it works with local governments and companies across the US and Canada to eliminate traffic and increase air quality. Jeffrey's been featured on Fox, NBC, ABC, NY1, New York Post, Newsday, LA Times, on it goes. Guy's a superstar. But he's also more than that. He lives in um, Venice Beach, which is a real groovy part of the world. He, um, a director of the Teen Foster Mentoring Program M4. He's a drummer of an electro band. I tried to look him up on um, Google, but that page on, on his drumming wouldn't open. Um, story of the Running Wolf. I'm sure there's a story in that in itself. He's a DJ and he's a volunteer with NFTE, which, as we know, is the network for teaching entrepreneurship. So he's got a lot of strings to his bow. Very interesting character. Hi, Jeffrey. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I was in the rock and roll business back in the 60s, so let's start there. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> tell, tell me about your musical um, background. Yeah, sure. I was a <clears throat> I was a drummer uh, from third grade on, and then uh, coming out of college, I went right into the investment banking world, and it was always a side, always a side thing. So in New York, I was an investment banker by day for Lehman Brothers. At night, I was in a rock band called Shotgun Stereo. Right. And it was a Pearl Jam-ish type of music, okay. uh, but poppy rock and roll. And then I moved out to California and, uh, you know, kept on with my, more of the entrepreneur route when I started my company. And out here, I realized I don't listen to that kind of music anymore. So why am I still playing it? <laughs> and I wanted to be in a band of the music that I actually listened to. So it was more like electro synth. I, I was into dance music. Yep. So I found, uh, I actually posted to Craigslist for about <laughs> six months. I was looking for a band and, you know, all these different bands are in L.A. So you get a lot of different mixed bags. Sure. And uh, one day I got fed up because it was, uh, you know, uh, like my post was very descriptive about being a drummer and here are my links. And I just wrote, make them dance in all caps. And I said, if Muse, The Faint, and Cut Copy had a baby. That's all I wrote in the post. And that day, I was contacted by my uh, musical soulmate, Josh. And we've been in an electro synth pop band every, ever, ever since, about three years ago. That's great. I love it. There's, there's something about the entertainment business. I, you know, I, um, I'd spent about 20 years treading the boards and releasing records and doing all that. And uh, now I go to a concert, you know, 40 years later or whatever, I go to a concert and I, I sit and watch and just wish I was up there. You know, I just wish <laughs> that was me. So, so I understand the pull of the rock and roll business or whatever. Yeah, it's, ni- it. it's nice to be doing that. Uh, I actually have a show tonight at the bootleg. So it's cool to, you know, have my uh, daytime entrepreneurial world and then at night, you know, put on a neon outfit and make a big crowd dance. Pretty, pretty <laughs> cool balance of life. Yeah, it's a great one. So, how did Right Amigos get started, and how does work? It's a pretty crowded field these days, isn't it? With um, 
you know, all the focus on big data um, to control traffic in cities and now Uber pool, I guess, and we've got um, um, Waze and Google people controlling traffic lights, all that stuff. So is it a, is it a very congested space now? Uh, it's really interesting because, you know, when I started, there was nobody doing this. And there yeah. hasn't been anyone doing this for, you know, a number of years. And Uber, Uber's success has changed our whole industry. So while Uber is this, you know, giant, some call it an evil empire, you know, <laughs> awaiting to take over the world and every possible delivery and move mobility service you can imagine, they made our industry hot, which is very cool for me. So... I was working for Lehman Brothers in New York City. Every morning, I'd, you know, I'd be in the Lower East Side, and the only people up at 7 in the morning in the Lower East Side are lawyers and people in finance, because everyone's outside, everyone's in a suit, and we're all walking to work. Yeah. Uh, the only other people outside are people walking home, and those people are not wearing a suit. <laughs> yeah. And we, um, I had the idea, like, this doesn't make any sense. All these people are either going to Midtown or the financial district, and they're all, especially on the Lower East Side, some people are getting into taxis alone, and some people, my, my commute was an hour long, and it was a 10-minute taxi just because there was no Second Avenue subway. Sure. So I, uh, I called my best friend, Evan, uh, Evan Meyer, who, you know, since third grade, I knew he had... I knew he worked with computers. He was working for MySpace at the time in California. Right. And I asked him if we could build a website that would connect two people who would share a taxi. So the original concept was taxi sharing, and we launched September 5th, 07. Uh, we were featured in, like, every newspaper. There happened to be a New York City taxi strike the same day we launched, which was, like, a crazy <laughs> opening of the heaven because everyone was sharing taxis and all the newspapers were writing about it. Right. So, um, so that's how we got started. It was the first taxi sharing website in, in the U.S. Uh, it was a really cool idea, but unfortunately, it was just way too early. Um, I mean, we had the idea for Uberpool, essentially, in our model, um, and Via, which is a shuttle service sure. in Europe right now. So all these apps are launching right now with our idea from 2007, but it, there were no apps back then. There was no Facebook. Facebook just started, you know, just started getting ground. So, yeah. unfortunately, with entrepreneurs, you know, most of the success is timing. Um, yeah. And we were too early. So, but that's how we got started. So, how, does it, how, did, how did you spread the word back then without social media being what it is now? Uh, back then, we, I, <laughs> so... All the newspapers wrote about the taxi strike, and the next day, I contacted all of the writers of those articles with our story, and they all wrote about us. So that was our first initial PR, and then uh, I was sitting in the back of a taxi that week, and there was, uh, it was right when New York City had the first uh, TV screens in the back seat. Yep, I remember that. And... And it was brand new. There was, there was no ad. There was no one taking the ad space. It was empty. It was, there was just a phone number to call. And half of the taxis were NBC and half of the taxis were ABC. Yeah. So I called the phone number for NBC and I enrolled their head of, you know, business development to give me free ad space on the back of a taxi, which is about $100,000 a month at the time. Yeah. 
And in exchange, we would have a blog on our website, NBC versus ABC, what do you like more and why? Right, okay. And it was, that was the best deal I've ever closed. I mean, it was 200. <laughs> so within a few weeks, we closed a $200,000 deal for free advertising. While we had that banner ad up in the back of a taxi, we were a critical mass. We yeah. were making 10, 10 connections a day. People were sharing. It was amazing. But when that ended, okay, we're not funded. How are we doing this? You know, the traffic started going down. Uh, and that's when we started having to think of, like, how are we pivoting this to survive? Because this doesn't, this won't really sustain itself. Yep. Um, but, but that is how we originally did it. So how did you then evolve into what you are? Well, how, how are you different today? Obviously, much different. But how are you different today than the two people sharing a cab back? Um, it's, only, it's only seven or eight years ago, so it's not that long. Yeah, so it's now, it's like eight years later. Um, Riding Migos in the current uh, existence is a SaaS platform. It's yep. a web-based platform that we will white label and license to either a really big city like Denver, San Diego, Toronto, yep. uh, or uh, a big company. Most of our awesome clients I can't mention, but like really, really big technology companies with big campuses yes. uh, and some really big universities. And what they're trying to do is essentially um, reduce the solo driving rate of their employees to get to work. And the city is trying to do the same. Everyone has the same goal. Get the solo driving rate down. Yep. So what our platform does, it's got a trip planner that shows all modes of transportation. So kind of like Google Maps, but we show carpooling and vanpooling and transit and biking and walking and any shuttles in the area. And then we compare and contrast them all. So essentially giving people information for them to make more responsible decisions on how to get to work. And then in addition to that, where the real power is, is a bunch of tools to motivate people to actually use it and act on it. So uh, gamification, competitions you can have with different teams for alternative uh, mode work weeks, Um, incentives where you log your trips and you exchange your alternative mode trip logs for, you know, uh, a gift card for, or uh, a lift ride that works to and from your workplace. Um, so incentives, gamification, uh, surveys, we've got a lot of reporting tools, a lot of mapping tools. Uh, there's an events platform. So there's about a dozen different tools that all of our clients use to motivate their employees to not drive alone. And that's what we are today. So you create interaction and therefore loyalty. Exactly. It's almost like a big loyalty program for uh, employers. So you you actually these days, instead of putting people together in, a, in the back of a cab, you, um, you actually provide everybody with all the options that are available to them and you, you know, you, do you any longer put people together or put people into these programs or how does that work? Great. Yeah, you're get, you, you get it. So we, that's the platform. Um, we still have the internal carpooling mechanism. So the traditional... I, you know, I want to find somebody to carpool to work. We still have that. That's still in its core in the trip planner. Right. So all of our customers still have the, um, the carpooling functionality in addition to the van pooling. Yep. Uh, and, but we're not actually facilitating the ride. One thing we are getting into now is incentivizing people who are using alternatives uh, by, and, and then rewarding those people with the Uber rides and the Lyft rides and the cardio, all these cool mobility options. Uh, our clients are basically buying those credits 
and then offering them to their employees so that they could use them. So you're almost rewarding people who already use alternative modes with more alternative modes, like a self-fulfilling uh, machine. Right. So that's what we've been up to, and that's how we're working with uh, these different mobility tech, I call them. New mobility tech. There's so many of them every day. Yeah, so it's a really, inter- really interesting space right now. So uh, how do you actually, um, how much work do you do with cities, or is it mainly private companies? So for the balance, so we pivoted for about three years. Right. Um, the first three years, we didn't make a dollar. Uh, yeah. We were just going from industry to industry. And it's so it's so wild because the things that we were doing back then are the things that are launching now. Yeah. So, you know, I pitched about 50 hotel chains to have shared black car services to and from their hotels and eco-friendly cars. Yeah. Just bad timing. You know, I was to, to the top of the Morgan's Hotel Group and... Uh, that's when hotel occupancy rates were about 40%, so it wasn't happening. Yeah. Um, so a bunch of deals. So we then closed, we, we found out that there was this world called transportation demand management, and all these different cities across the U.S. and Canada have federally funded programs to get people in a carpool. So we kind of walked in and were like, wow, this is a whole new world. Why are, why are all these websites carpooling websites when they should be kind of everything websites, kind of that multimodal trip planner I explained? Yeah. Yes. So we pitched that, and we won Century City in L.A., which is our first client ever in 2010. And then, then we just delved into that world. So for the, you know, the first four years from 2010 to 2014, it was really winning government clients. That's about... I would say it's about 80% of all of our revenue is big cities and regions. Okay. And then more recently, we realized, wait a second. So we, we license it to a big city, and then they go market it to all the employers in the region. Why don't we just market it directly to the employer? So over the last six months or so, we've kind of shifted our business model. We're not going away from the regional, but we've closed some of, like, the biggest names and corporates. Um, in the last six months from, you know, apparel to technology, um, we're, we're, we're winning. Uh, so it's very cool because it's a lot shorter sales cycle and it's, it's scalable versus the regional model. So we're kind of doing both, but we're way more focused on universities and enter- enterprises now. How much, how much um, effort are big cities or cities putting into the big data analytics to, to um, refine things like traffic light control and bus pickups and cab pickups, all those things. How much are company, the cities really spending in that area? Or are they just paying lip service to it, like most governments? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's tough because, you know, the government sector, there's so many departments and there's so many people and there's so much red tape that... I don't know if the, you know, urban training department or urban planning department or the, the traffic light, like the intelligent transportation systems, what that's called, if they're even talking to our client because it's a different department in a different office in a different place. So it's really interesting working with these big infrastructures. Right. Are, are people actually talking? So in some cities, you might have great communication and in, other, in most, you have none. Uh, I'd like to see more of that. Like, I'd like to see, you know, a traffic analytics person ringing our doorbell saying, hey, you work with my city. Can I take this data and use it to really better plan uh, the infrastructure planning for 2017, 2018? And we don't really see that. And there should be more of it. 
So it's kind of one of our goals to just get better data. So our, one of the newest things we have rolling out is a mobile app that uh, in the background tracks your trips. So if you have it on your pocket, I'll know if you took a transit, uh, transit trip or if you carpool with someone else in the car. So you're not asking people to manually log anymore. And what's cool is that it's great for the user because they don't have to do anything and they just start getting incentives, you know, passively. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great for the city because we start getting way better analytics. That's kind of my big push for 2016 is this mobile app and rolling it out to all of our clients. So somebody like um, somebody like Waze, for example, are they in competition to you? I mean, to you, or is is that sort of a sort of company that you could do a joint venture with to to gain all this additional information, or what's the relationship? Between yeah, Waze, um, Waze, Waze itself, you know, our trip, I don't ever expect anyone to go to our trip planner versus a Google Waze or a Google, uh, or sorry, a Waze or a Google Map. Right. Um, you know, it just, I have to be realistic. Like, why would I go to our trip planner? So in the future, I imagine kind of the trip tracking system offering you um, your different options, you know, all in the mobile app um, based on the route that we know you're taking. Right. right now, it's more about, I call it a routine-based trip planner, where people go in, they know their commute, and once a month, once every few weeks, I check it to see what my options are and find those carpools. Right. So it's kind of like a different target. Um, what I can work with is Waze actually just uh, launched a, uh, a new app called Ride With. It's yep. testing in, in Israel, and it's a carpooling app based on Waze users, which is a really cool concept because right. the concept of real-time ride sharing, whereas, you know, I could right now find a carpool, it's been tried and tried and tried. I've been watching all these companies try over the years and all of them have failed. And if anyone's got a shot, it's Waze because of how many users they have. I mean, they already have the critical mass. So that'd be really cool sure. to see if that's successful. What about Uberpool? Uberpool is this kind of... Good early days, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, Uberpool is cool, but it's still a taxi driver driving. Yeah. You know, Uber versus RideWith is actually real carpooling. Right, um, okay. And all these things can be integrated into our trip planner, and we can kind of always show, show people what's available. I'm way more interested to see what happens with RideWith than Uberpool, because Uberpool is just, you know, uh, it's Uber maximize with the algorithm to pick up multiple people. Yep. But it's still it's still a shuttle versus taking an actual car off the road. Even though even though it is better than nothing. I definitely think it's better than just taking an Uber. So and I use all this stuff. So I use Uberpool, I use Lyft Line, uh, and our system is around to kind of promote all these services in whole. So what's the resistance to um, you know, I'm living in LA, I drive down the freeway every day, and all I see is millions of cars with one person in them. What's the resistance to um, to carpooling? Man, there's so many. Yeah, it depends on who you ask. For some people, uh, it's, I think number one is I want my freedom. I am busy. And I, when I want to go there, what if, you know, what if I want to go somewhere else after work? And just the idea of having my car when I need it is super important to people. So that's the number one. Other people just don't want to get in a car with a stranger. Um, that's the more social dynamic. 
And, you know, some people just aren't. Some people use Lyft and some people use Uber. And there's a different culture of the people that actually use that. Lyft is typically a little bit more friendly. You sit in the front seat. You talk to the driver. Uber, you're in the back. It's like a taxi. And, you know, there's not much communication. And it's usually, it's on average, a different type of driver, um, you know, uh, socially-wise. So just like that, um, I think it's a, a little bit different for everybody. And the way we're going to get people to change their motivation to do it is it's gonna, it helps that all these new options are out there. So if I take a carpool and I need to get home on the fly, I can now take these Ubers and Lyfts and um, I can rent a car with like a car to go or a zip car or enterprise rent a car and I can have a car by the hour and get there. A few years ago, that wasn't been, none of that existed. Yeah, uh, companies um, like if you've got Google and and they've got a bunch of people all coming out of San Francisco, um, going down to the campus. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to have, and and there's a lot of motivation therefore or incentive for people to take the take the pool. Um, are people getting away from their own car? I mean, I'm, I'm just about to buy a new car and I'm sitting here saying, why am I putting all this money, apart from the fact that I'm an egocentric, you know, and I want to have a good car? Um, it doesn't make any sense, does it, to own a car? You know, it, you'll, you're, we're seeing in the newer generation <clears throat> coming out of college, this, you know, we're, we're conditioned to believe that we need a car because of our whole lives. Yeah. Including me, I'm only 33 and I'm conditioned I need a car. Yeah. Um, but the, <clears throat> we're seeing people come out of college right now with um, less of a need to own things. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, and it's reflective in our society right now. It, it, it's amazing when you think of Airbnb is the largest real estate owner. They don't own any, they actually don't own anything. Same thing with Alibaba for merchandise. They actually don't own anything. Um, now there's sites coming out like um, oh, what's the get around where I could rent someone else's car by the hour. Yeah. So there's all these things around the shared economy which are not just talk anymore. I can actually do it. I could rent a car by the hour. I could get somewhere. I can get downtown LA for twenty bucks. Sure. Uh, I could share a ride. So I think the conversation just really changed, and we're seeing it now with the newer generations who aren't conditioned to believe that they need a new car other than, you know, watching the Super Bowl and seeing car ad after car ad after car ad. What's interesting is that those same companies all have venture funds in my space. Right. So the BMWs, the Fords, Volvo, Daimler, they're all investing in companies like mine in our space because they know that the future is not necessarily all about personal car ownership. Yeah, that's... That's true, um, and that. So you, you've got a, a booming future ahead. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a it's a wild space to be in. We've never raised venture capital money. We're you know very very rare. I think in terms of you know we grew our company. We've got ten employees. Uh, I meet with other companies that are doing the same amount of work, and they have thirty forty employees. So right. I think we just really grew up in the how much could we do with how, how little. Right. Um, and now is that kind of time where we're starting to scale. Do we raise money? Uh, we've had M&A discussions with a few really cool, bigger companies that almost acquired us. So 
we're in a very interesting time in our life cycle as a company. Like, what do we do? We could really do anything uh, in terms of growth, money, where to put it, going, going into the mobile space, who to partner with. So it's pretty exciting. I, I, would, I would definitely bet on Ride Amigos. <laughs> as I have, as I have. <laughs> as, you, as you obviously have. Yeah, I was talking to Paul Scott, who is also a metal guy, who's an um, uh, electric vehicle um, and transportation specialist, if you like. And uh, he said the other day that um, he believes that 2017 onwards, there will be a dramatic reduction in the number of cars on the road. They'll be electric. They'll be very shortly after that. They'll be self-driving. Um, so it'll be much more disciplined roads. And uh, well, that that would bode well for you guys, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think I, I think it, it's all interrelated. There's also going to be the government. The federal government has a really big uh, program around interconnected vehicles, so vehicles that could talk to one another. Yep. So when you get on the highway, you just lock into the vehicle in front of you, and you're not driving it. And a lot of that's for you know safety and accidents and. Uh, you know, the idea of self-driving cars is interesting because it's not necessarily for personal car ownership. The, the concept is more for community vehicles that yeah. are just shuttling people around. And it's like amazing. That's why Uber is such an interesting company because once they replace their drivers, I think they're most set up to be that company that's just shuttling people around there. And that's, I'm guessing, part of their model. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it all helps us. Apparently yeah. they've placed they've placed um, orders or they've been in discussions uh, for 500 self-driving cars to be delivered 2017. I think Uber. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's going to be an, and where Riding Amigos falls in is going to be interesting because you know will the self-driving car put Riding Amigos out of business because traffic and solo driving is no longer an issue, or will Riding Amigos adapt to that concept and really be kind of a hub? for all modes, including those types of options. And I think, I think I'm, that's I'm, more I'm likely. I think the, that yeah, I'm, I'm, over, I'm pushing for the latter, that's for yeah. sure. I'm aware <laughs> of what's happening. You might have to go back to your rock and roll roots. Um, yeah, exactly. So uh, have you ever raised capital along the way? So we, um, we, we took on a very, very small investment uh, by one of the largest mapping companies in the world yeah. um, in 2013, very small stakes, so uh, basically no, um, which has been really interesting to force yourself to organically grow, which is, which is pretty awesome. Uh, and I think what happens when you don't have, you know, a few million dollars in the bank to just play with is we're, we were really careful with how we spent our money and what we developed over the years. It was really customer-driven. Right. And if we had money in the bank, you know, everyone was telling us to build a real-time ride-sharing app. So yeah. an app that just connects you on the fly with somebody. And we watched so many companies you know, invest tens of millions of dollars into that space, and they all went out of business. I've seen so many companies go out of business in our space. You know, they get VC funding. They're the hottest thing in the, on TechCrunch for a minute, and then they go away. Yeah. Uh, in the event space, in the real-time ride-sharing space. So it forced us to just kind of hold our cards closer um, and be really careful of how we went to market, who our customers were. But now we're in a very different place because I kind of see us being the best possible um, 
almost like a distributor of these new apps because yeah. we're the ones we, we took the hard way. It's very difficult to win government clients. Um, yes. It's you have to know the industry. You have to know how to write RFPs or 300-page proposals, and then to win your to be the to get that first one is really hard because sure. no government wants to be first yep. of a of a new kind of tech startup. So we've been winning so many, our, and our win rate is so high. We're a great vehicle for these apps to essentially start working with government. So I see Ridemigos evolving into the largest middleman between governments and companies and all these new mobility apps because these companies don't know how to navigate that world and we do and and for these apps to work with them it's it's hard to work you know there's no one wants to be first in in, in the corporate space either yeah. so um at this point we're actually starting to explore what it would look like if we raise uh you know let's say three million dollars um, to, to actually to scale, work of you know, bring our mobile apps to market faster. So it's something we're starting to look at for the first time in eight years right now because I think we're actually in a prime position to actually you know execute on it. It seems to me that because you're not a vested interest, you're not selling the one brand that you own, um, and people will want to know the options. That uh, you're in a great space. Yeah, and it's funny because I've had a few talks with uh, some pretty awesome venture capital firms, in the, especially in the mobility space, but also just general VCs. Yep. And they asked us, so what's your, uh, what's your runway look like? And it's like, runway? Like, what's a runway? <laughs> what, is that, what does that word even mean? We've been, we've been months and months since 2008. We just keep growing and we keep paying the bills. So yeah. I don't really know what runway, and that's a really funny concept because you know, I, I mentor a lot of companies, and I get what a runway is, but that's like that's when you're you're playing the money raise game. Sure. You 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 raise a round, and by the time you're on raising the round, you're already raising the next round, and it's yeah. just this it's this big big casino bet on you know getting to market and getting as many users as possible, and not worrying about your revenue model. And I mean, this is, it's not you know a universal statement. There's a lot of companies out there that are enterprise and are SaaS and are revenue growth, but it. I, especially in kind of Silicon Beach area, yep. it's a lot of consumer apps that let's just get a bunch of users and monetize on it. Yep. And it's awesome. Uh, it's just something that we're really not um, accustomed to because it's all about like we're never going to run out of money and we're never going to go out of business because that's just not, it's not possible. It's like it's, it's, a, it's a mindset. Um, yep. We'll always figure it out. Um, so it's cool to think about raising money because then it's just a bigger it's just a bigger game. Sure. And yet, you spend your whole life, um, once you start raising money and start expanding using that capital, you, you're going to be raising money for the rest of your life. There's no stopping it. And you tend to, and if you're the entrepreneur, you tend to be less and less focused on being creative and, and you know, taking advantage of all the opportunities. You're still out there knocking on bloody doors. So what? And that's the fear. That's the fear. Yeah. That's like that is the fear. If you raise that. money, will it change the culture of the whole company? And the reason we recently decided to look more into that concept of like how to grow into it is really the simple question: is what impact on the world are we going to make on our own? Yep. Versus if we add a lot of fuel to this fire, and that's like. How many companies will we affect? How many regions will we affect in the next three years if we just keep growing really slowly, which is great. It's, you know, 
kudos to the to, 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 for doing that. But if you know, could we really make the impact we want to make? And our vision is to eliminate traffic. That, that's our goal. That's why we started the company. Uh, it's a crazy concept, eliminate traffic. But yeah. uh, there are stats from you know the DOTs and the EPAs of the world that if you can cut, if you can get ten percent of the people on the road to share cars, you'll cut traffic in half. Right. And you know that concept is like it, it, it seems attainable. Uh, and a lot of the companies that we work with and regions, it's it's all about parking, and that's their big what's in it for me. Sure. Uh, the parking, the parking world for the big companies that we work with, they only have so many parking spaces, and they can't build anymore. So they've yeah. got to figure out other stuff. And to to build a parking space on average in the U.S. is thirty four thousand dollars to build a parking space. Right. So wow. If 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 like if ten percent of the Fortune five hundred companies use Ride Amigos and perform the metrics that we've shown for our other clients, we would save about $230 billion in parking. And that is wow. the big value add. Um, that's kind of the number that, you know, the Walmarts of the world can look at based on how many offices sure. they have around the world and say, like, holy moly, like, that's the ROI. Yeah, yeah, that's the ROI for these. Jeffrey, we're just about out of time. I've got one request of you. Um, when you're cutting traffic, could you start with the 101? <laughs> I would love to, yeah. <laughs> thanks thanks for very you. much. Anything. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really appreciate it. Now, if you'd like to find out more about Jeffrey Chernick and uh, Ride Amigos, go to Ride Amigos, R-I-D-E-A-M-I-G-O-S dot com. And if you look up Jeffrey Chernick, there's a whole bunch of stuff there, including a story about his rock and roll business. So I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Show and Voice America Business Map Channel, <clears throat> the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. As I explained at the top of the program, I got off an airplane today and uh, from flying halfway across the world. And when I got off the plane, I had no throat, so I've got no voice, so I apologize for that. So I'm sipping hot water and honey and lemon, but it doesn't seem to be making that much of a difference. The discussion with Jeffrey was really interesting, wasn't it? When you put that together with the interview we had a couple of weeks ago about um, electric and autonomous cars, it shows you just what an unbelievable difference they're going to make to the economy of the world and the efficiency of doing business and where parking alone can be nearly 300 billion dollars in savings i mean that's quite extraordinary so (coughs) excuse me it's going to be an amazing future now linkedin is uh, becoming an extremely important tool in securing the dream job that you're after So let me tell you a way to get your LinkedIn profile uh, 
seen by a lot more employers. Now, more than 400 million people worldwide are on LinkedIn, so it's a great audience. And for those using it to help land a great new job, there's good news with that, and there's also bad news. The good news is with that many people using the um, business-oriented social network, recruiters are prowling the site to find job candidates. LinkedIn makes over 60% of its revenue on recruiter tools. tools. The bad news is that with 400 million profiles on the site, it can be tough to stand out from the pack. And the best way for recruiters to find you is if your profile pops up when they're searching for job candidates. I'm sorry if it's hard to listen to this voice. It's a damn sight harder to talk, I tell you. So here's a tip for highlighting your profile in those searches. Fill out the section of your profile called Summary and make it at least 40 words long, at least 40 words long. Summaries shorter than 40 words will not trigger inclusion in a search. Having a profile with at least 40 words means the profile can surface higher up in the searches that include words that match words in a profile. It's also good to stuff appropriate keywords in your summary. And it doesn't help you, it doesn't hurt you to put a view of those first 40 words to describe your job expertise and experience. So go into the summary, make it at least 40 words long, and uh, you've got a much higher chance of getting included in the searches. Now, one of the most extraordinary new technologies that could have a profound effect on the future of the human race is known as CRISPR, which is C-R-I-S-P-R. This is a method for cutting and pasting DNA inside the cells of human organisms, living human organisms, um, much the same way as we edit film. So you look at the DNA in the same way you look at film. You identify the defective or undesired parts cut them out and replace them with characteristics that are preferred. This is extraordinary technology and uh, this technique has been hailed for its potential to cure deadly diseases, modify crops and can even help scientists generate genetically engineered designer babies, but it will prevent one hell of a lot of diseases. It's just about it for me. 2016 is not yet a couple of weeks old, but already for me it's been a sensational year. And I do appreciate you listening to me every week, and I promise by next week I'll have my regular voice back. I also thank all of you who have subscribed to my monthly newsletter and who have joined the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management, where I'm fortunate for the next year to be the honorary president. In the meanwhile... Remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope, if you're not living right on the edge, then you're taking up far too much space. Get out of the road. Let somebody go past that really wants to succeed because it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Now, this is Bob Pritchard. I look forward to your company again next week where my guest will be my friend Nolan Bushnell. Now, he was the man that created Atari, gave Steve Jobs his first job, 
and was a close friend and mentor of Steve until his death. You'll love the interview. It's fabulous, and I look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.